Welcome everybody to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined as always by co-host Corey. Alright, so the next thing we wanted to talk about was our CBC interviews that we did. We did three separate interviews that were based generally on the podcast, I guess, how we got started, our backgrounds they wanted to know about, and uh, they seemed to be interested in our take on on the Safer Supply Initiative in BC. So we did those interviews. It was a great experience. Uh, we're grateful to have had the opportunity, and uh, although it wasn't a lot of time to to discuss the, discuss the issues, we felt that we used our time to the best of our ability, given what we knew about the interviews, and so we were happy with that. An article was published that kind of amalgamated all the information that that we went over and the questions that we were asked and our subsequent answers. And of course, when CBC put the article up there, I think they give it a, a certain amount of time where the comment section is open. And I didn't read those comments, but uh, Corey Corey read <laughs> Corey went through them, and uh, I. I think we got eviscerated was the feeling that uh, I got from some of the things you, you told yeah. me about. So I guess the experience is interesting in that uh, your reaction to reading those comments, I thought was, was valuable. And uh, so I, I'd ask you about that, I guess. I mean, what was it like uh, discovering that comment section, getting kind of pulled into it, and going through comment guy by comment and and how so how did that feel and tell us about that experience yeah well i mean first the experience of doing the actual doing the interviews preparing for that took a lot of a lot of energy a lot of emotional energy you know there was a lot of not doubt but i i think we really i really wanted to to try to just be in control of my words and what the message we were trying to send was because particularly in our position, probably more so for you because you still have a, a license as a, as a pharmacist, but for me, not having a license, I had less to lose there. But what we are saying is pretty new information. It's, it's hasn't been said a lot mm. and you, we've, you know, we've heard, There've been healthcare workers come forward. There, there've been other articles about the healthcare workers' experience with mandatory treatment. Their CBC has looked at that, but I felt like we were putting our necks out there a little bit, sure, and and exposing ourselves, exposing ourselves to, in my case, members of my community, former coworkers, that sort of thing. And so, mm -hmm. I was just very aware of that, and uh, and in reading going on online and reading the comment section on the article, because there's no feedback from the radio unless it was people that reached out to us or people in our lives that commented. Mm -hmm. But in reading the comments online, it was uh, initially pretty deflating <laughs> uh, to say the least pretty, not just deflating on a personal level because it was, they were very, the comments were very hateful towards mm -hmm. us towards me. It seemed like in particular, and it was very clear that the, how, how politicized this issue is and how divisive this issue is. And would you say that you were disappointed with people's understanding? 
Oh yeah. I, I think disappointed in people's understanding about, about safe supply mm-hmm. and the position and lack of understanding about people who are dying from overdose deaths and, and, you know, the insensitivity towards people's family and friends. Right. Um, yeah. the, the complete lack of understanding towards healthcare workers or professionals or people in trusted professions who have a, a crack in their veneer of mental health or who use a substance. Mm. Yeah. Not a lot of tolerance for humanity there. Right. Oh no. And I mean, so, uh, and, and it's, keeping in mind, keeping in mind, we are aware that any comment section is going to be, I mean, the people who comment on, on sites like this are usually very polarized. It's either going to be, oh, yeah. we love what you're saying, please continue, or we hate what you're saying, you're destroying the world. So there's that <laughs> aspect. And then there's also, there's a certain amount of trolling that goes on too, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, it can be entertaining, but when you're talking about an issue like this, you know, the, I think the more serious the issue is, the crazier the trolls get sometimes, right? Yeah. Where they- yeah. And there were, and, and you're right. First of all, there were a couple of some individuals that were, you know, standing up in, in def- not in our defense, but in defense of safe supply, in defense of, of recovery and all sorts of valuable things. But yeah, it was a very small population of people doing the sort of the hateful, the hate speech or the hateful comments. <laughs> but, you know, I don't have, I don't have the comments in front of me here, but a couple of them that come to mind were, first of all, the comment of how much of these guys pay the CBC to allow them <laughs> this, this exposure. <laughs> not when we did not pay the CBC. <laughs> that was our goal uh, from the of setting out. We had to, we had to get on CBC and we were willing to pay our, yeah. our $0 budget. Um, mm-hmm. We really pushed it forward and, and bought out the CBC. That's right. Um, and then comments about, you know, that we should, you and I should be in jail, that we right. are criminal junkies. And so. Not the first time I've heard that one. No. So having people around me really check, you know, give me reassurance and giving me support. And I intellectually know that these are, you know, people that are either with limited experience or are, con- you know, fairly conservative leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be, mentally, I could come up with all sorts of reasonable justification for why they are saying the things that they're saying. And I could explain it and rationalize it and then try to brush it off. But what I really found and what I shared with, with you and with our community was that it still generated a, a, a sensation of shame, mm. a physical sensation of shame. And, you know, we've talked about that. That is very much like a feeling of tension, a feeling of, of like, embarrassment, feeling hot in the face, feeling kind of like angry and heightened. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I had said to you is that, and there were 700 plus comments on that article. Mm-hmm. So whether it's coming from 700 mostly negative comments <laughs> or whether it's coming from one negative interaction with a manager or with a person at human resources or a person from an insurance company, mm-hmm. it lands the same. I really realized that like the scale of shame, it was the same. Mm. It was generating the same feeling within me. And even as far as I consider myself to have come, 
it just it i think i i think what i did realize is that i was able to support myself and kind of discard that shame much more quickly than i could when i first went off work and some of the conversations i had with my employer and hr and stuff like that where that shame would have lingered for days and it would have kept me up at night yeah but but shame is shame and it's like it, it does the same kind of a thing internally right so can you imagine for whatever circumstances if uh, obviously you wouldn't do an interview like this the day after you know you got that call from your employer or whatever <laughs> no <laughs> but can you imagine the impact of something public to that scale on your psyche you know a year and a half two years ago for sure in, in comparison to now like i mean quite honestly it it literally does nothing to me like i i find it i find it amusing and i find it uh the part that was disturbing to me was the just i i was a little shocked at the level of misunderstanding as far as yeah. like i i thought maybe there'd be a little more you know people under the understanding of of the problem and the the understanding of the reality of what needs to be done would be a little higher uh, that was shocking. And like you said, disheartening. I mean, the, the ones you pointed out there, I, I, I just thought like, wow, that is, you know, if they're not trolling and, and some of those people are obviously not trolling, but that it would, it would be a strange world to live in if that's the way you thought about things. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that, so that, that part was a little tough for me to wrap my head around, but as, uh, as far as the shame part, there was no. Like I, but then again, I didn't, maybe if I went through and I read the whole list, <laughs> I would, yeah, it would get for me, sure. you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, the thing I, I, I wrote on, on Twitter that week, one of my realizations, and I'm making an assumption about these people, but I feel free because these people have made a number of egregious assumptions about mm-hmm. us is that stigma is so bound to insecurity fear yeah fear fear you know and fear and and fear go and insecurity insecurities in there too yeah and and it it gets projected outwardly it does it's an outward projection of their own fear or insecurity and that fear may be around their own mental health or their their own experience with substance use or their parents that they were never able to say and, yeah. and you know the, the the family member whoever that may be but i just would maybe take a, a swing at the fact that a lot of them you know it's well my my parent drank and i could never say anything and and it, it gets it gets tangled up and internalized and then projected out as as hate mm-hmm. as negativity and really toxic venomous stuff yeah yeah it and, sure does and and then it gets politicized and it gets made into something even more powerful, which is what is can get really, I think, scary in our, you know, in terms of changing policy and influencing, you know, drug policy, public policy, stuff about about housing. It, you could just draw a long, long, long line of issues that, that are connected to that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this that, is oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that that's kind of the crux of the whole thing in Western culture right now, right? is yeah. this uh, 
politicians, especially popular, uh, popularist populations. Who, uh, <laughs> uh, populist? Populist. Thank you. Once we're using, like a directly using fear to motivate their base, solidify their base, and then sometimes pull disgruntled members away from their party. Like Pierre Poiliev, his statement about children getting diverted, hydromorph. Yeah. He knows that that's not true. Yeah. His handlers know it's not true. And it's just, it's such a low level grab. And it's just, I, I look at that and I think, you know, really, we're still doing this type of shit after everything we've seen and everything we've been through. I mean, I get it. It's low hanging fruit and it works. You know, I, I unfortunately it works. So you, you almost can't blame them. But at the same time, if you're going to go for a leadership position like that, you'd think you'd hope that somebody would be a little more responsible with uh, with the truth. But, it, you know, eh, it's just it's never going it, to happen. It's 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 such a display of small and narrow mindedness. Yeah. And it's, is it necessary? Like, that's the other thing is in his case, I don't think it's even necessary. No. You know, his base is his base. He's got them. You don't need to convince them. They're already convinced that what we're doing is insane. Yeah. You know, so you're, it's not like you're going to move the needle there. I don't know. I just, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. Yeah. But that, but that the people who are making those type of comments that are fear-based, that's their bread and butter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you know, your, your, your dad was actually helpful in what he said to us was that this hasn't, this is actually what you and I were trying to get across is to kind of tie up everything that we're discussing is that at least we're alive and express some gratitude for being alive. And that the individuals who have a safe supply, whatever that may be, and a safe supply can look like a number of things in our province, including if you're diverting it from the workplace, Mm -hmm. you're still alive. You still have the opportunity to to recover, to work on your mental health, to, to live. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important point that you made there. And it really resonated with a lot of people. Uh, Your point about nurses having access to a safe supplier, healthcare professionals having access. Yeah. It's, it's a good way for people to look at it and you don't see, you don't see stats for nurses dying. And it's not that that is a, you know, concrete evidence in itself, but it does give people a little bit of a, a framework to start to understand what, what the point of this is. Yeah. And if, if you are of the mind that would look at that statement and say, he's condoning drug theft and, yeah. and intoxication at work for nurses, then I feel sorry for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's missing the point a little bit there for sure. Yeah. I guess uh, the other thing that maybe we thought we'd touch on here is some of the issues that that would be confusing to people or I I mean really one of the things that I I thought would be useful is if we do spend some time at some point here and put together just a, a kind of a a very digestible piece on on how safe supply is working right now, you know, what what is being offered and what's you know, what's some of the problems, what's some of the pros and cons with what's happening now, what we're seeing so far with the evidence, what we're hoping to see in the future, that kind of thing. So 
to to help kind of because sometimes I think we get caught up and and we just we talk like everybody understands exactly what safe supply is and many people I think don't could use a little more information as yeah. to what what safe supply is and what the goal of safe supply is. So at some point I'd like to do that. For now, we'd there's a couple things that there's some real concerns, I guess, and and one of them is diversion. So what we mean by di- diversion is when we're giving out, let's say uh, hydromorph is a good example. If we're giving out hydromorph uh, for people to use on their own, and that sometimes could be with their opiate agonist therapies, like say they're on methadone or or some other kind of stabilizing sort of long acting formula that's that's meant to prevent withdrawal and help stabilize Mm -hmm. their life that way. And then the idea would be to give them a safe supply of something they can use instead of toxic drugs so that they're not at risk of overdosing. Now, some people say, like what Pierre was alluding to there, (laughs) is that by providing these like hydromorph tablets, for example, to people, they're going to take them and then they're going to sell them or they're going to give them out or they're, in other words, they're going to be diverted away from that person and they're going to go elsewhere into the streets or whatever. Now, this is a, this is something that is going to happen. It's something that is going to be an inherent risk uh, of this program. And what we would, what we would be looking for here is an increase in deaths from hydromorph alone. If we saw that, that would be an indicator that, that the program would be having a negative effect because right now we're not the vast majority of deaths that we're seeing uh, in this crisis are from products that are, that contain fentanyl. It can be all sort of, there can be tons of different drugs in there, but it's fentanyl that is killing people. So if we saw somebody who is just using a pharmaceutical grade dilaudid or hydromorph, and we saw uh, people dying from that, that would be an indication that we would be contributing to the problem instead of, alleviating the problem right we have we have not seen any indicators yet that that is happening no so it's either too early to tell because the program is too small or it's not a problem yet but that's that would be a a concern and people like well if there's more like the price has been driven down uh tenfold now which is good that's what we want Mm -hmm. so now instead of ten dollars for i think it was ten dollars for an eight milligram tab of uh, dilaudid it's now one dollar so at that price reduction, it's almost, it almost doesn't make sense to like, people are just, I, I think what that indicates to me, at least is that people are for the most part using their safe supply, like they're supposed to be using it Yeah, because it's, and, and that's what we are trying to do <laughs> to prevent the death. So that's, that's a good indication. And the other thing that that does, of course, is it kicks legs out from people who are dealing shit drugs. Yeah. Right? You've got this stuff out there. Well, do I have to? And I'm in a real bind here and all I can get is fentanyl. Well, no, you don't have to use fentanyl here. Have a couple of mine, you know? Yeah. And Garth uh, has talked about that often, how sharing has uh, saved him from having to, you know, go to go to shitty supply. And yeah. I, I think that's a case. I mean, I, I would speculate that that's the case for a lot of people, but we don't know. Yeah. The other pin to put in that art hole argument is taking a look at underage drunk driving deaths in our country because alcohol 
is sold as a safe supply. It mm-hmm. is a controlled safe supply of alcohol in our country. And any miner who cannot go into a store and buy that alcohol for themselves is getting it either by diverting it from their, you know, adult family member supply, or they have an adult who's buying it for them. Right. And in the times that you hear of underage drunk driving deaths, say you, you never hear liquor stores get called into question or the debate about, well, maybe we should just, you know, go back to prohibition. You would never yeah. hear that. No, you would never hear that. In in those cases, the public is very used to uh, the onus is is very shifted to the parents or the as a community. What can we do? And and it's interesting that <laughs> because we're so used to alcohol, it's viewed entirely different. But yeah. it's the same goddamn thing. It's the same thing. In fact, it's quite lethal. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're looking at from a legal perspective, like. Many, many, many people use pharmaceutical grade opiates and don't die, but lots of people die from alcohol or you could throw cigarettes in there too. Sure. It's a safe supply of uh, tobacco kills tons and tons of people. Yeah. And uh, same type of scenario. And it's an, it's new thinking. And I, I agree with you. I think having a broader conversation about, about the various, because safe supply looks like a number of things right now. It doesn't look like a singular thing. Alcohol looks like liquor stores. Mm-hmm. Right. Or maybe a, a winery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the safe supply of opiates looks like it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a collage right now in our province. It is. Yeah. So that's, I mean, diversion, I think will be a, an ongoing metric that has to be kind of, kind of monitored. And, and we, because it's, it's so new, what, what we're doing here is so we're so far ahead of the States. I yeah. mean, there's there's some data that we've accumulated over the years, and I, and I think in Europe and stuff, but nobody knows really what would happen. I don't think if if we were to just say legalize everything tomorrow, you no. know, th- there's no way to know. I mean, would would more people experiment and then get hooked on uh, on opiates? The data suggests no. The data suggests very little increase or decrease in the amount of people who would end up addicted, but yeah. we don't know for sure. So no. this is one of those things where it's a risk versus benefit. And again, we talk about triaging. We know people are dying right now. That's what we're going to focus on first is trying to stop that. Once we can make a dent, uh, once, you know, if we can get these programs to the point where they're making a dent in the uh, number of deaths, then, you know, we can start working on the other stuff, but that's right. That's right. One thing at a time. Yeah. The other concern that I that I personally have, and I'm, I'm sure many people do, especially the uh, conservative voters in this country and provinces, how much is this program costing us mm-hmm. versus how much are we saving? So here is, uh, you know, people point to, okay, well, right now we're giving people the, the safe supply that's available and the opioid agonist therapy most of the time is supplied by the province of BC uh, as uh, for free. So that means the taxpayers are paying for this. And depending on, you know, what formulations of, of medications are being used and how high the doses are, some of those, some per- daily prescriptions can be quite expensive. So what I think we need to do is, first of all, we got to find a way to convince manufacturers to start producing things like, like heroin. We, we need... 
manufacturers to get good at making diacetylmorphine yeah. as as a as an uh, a cheaper, readily available, consistent option. I mean it, that in it like that is that's something that's got to be worked on on its own, and yes. as well as anything else that that needs to be done as far as providing drugs and making sure they're they're available. We've got to get the cost down on those because I think the the metrics of concern here are, you know, say you're you're in the business of of just looking at the economics of this problem. So we got we got a bunch of people dying in their productive years. So mm -hmm. that's hurting our GDP. The people who are relying on street drugs have to find money for street drugs. It's expensive. That requires a lot of petty crime. You, you got to break the law often and you got to break it consistently. That's results in vandalism, theft, uh, all sorts of different crimes that uh, the police, we need to use resources that cost money to you know, process all that stuff. That's not considering the theft on its own as far as the, the loss of items, the insurance dollars there, mm -hmm. et cetera. You've also got with this, with the ongoing, the number of overdoses we have, that costs a certain, every time somebody overdoses, an ambulance comes, picks them up, take them to the hospital. That's a certain price tag. And Absolutely. then you've got the price tag uh, of having people living in under such chaotic circumstances where they spend the majority of their day finding enough money to get the drugs they need to make it through the day. So under those circumstances, those people basically haven't, they can only focus on getting enough money. They can't focus on other aspects of their life. So it's very difficult for them to stabilize. And when you're living in a very unstable, unpredictable, dangerous environment, uh, like if you're experiencing homelessness or whatever it may be, you tend to use more resources yes. uh, through, you know, interactions with the police, interactions with uh, healthcare providers, mental health, et cetera. So we would be looking at how much does all that cost us per person who is um, at risk of dying right now? And then how much money are we saving by providing them medications that mitigate those risks and stabilize their life so that they can get they can focus on other things and try to find a better, you know, a better way to spend their time. Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the math equation as far as economics goes. And, and again, it's a big, it's going to be a big question mark until I think this, we can get more people, you know, until we start seeing an impact and a more kind of decisive program that's not all tied up with other antiquated or not antiquated, but there's conflicting motivations in these in these programs, right? Like opiate agonist therapy is different than safe supply, but you have people who are on both programs. So yep. in one respect, they have to witness a dose and they are regulated and they could be kicked off that program if they don't comply. In the other respect, it's more of a autonomous program where they they're working with their healthcare professional and their healthcare professional is not saying, Well, this is what the book is telling me. So this is what you get. They're saying, this is, you know, this person is telling me this is what they need of this drug to get through and to make their life better. So that's what I'm going to provide. No strings attached. And, you know, there's sorting out that needs to be done there. But Do you see those two worlds existing well right now, current, the present, present day? I see them from a relative point of view. It, I, like I, I'm impressed with uh, what, what some physicians are able to do. 
given the, you know, their hands are kind of tied, right? And they're under tremendous amount of pressure to, to on the one hand, you've got a contingent of people who are saying, you know, give them whatever they want. Let, like, you got to save their life, which is true. So there's advocates to save supply. And then there's the other kind of school of thought where, you know, they there's, there's a big push towards, well, we got to monitor how much they're using so that we can bring them down and get them off drugs. And for some people, and I, I, I believe this just comes back to autonomy and personal, you know, it's, it's where the person's at. If that person is in a place where they're not interested in going to treatment, they're not interested in titrating off of opiates, then I believe you're wasting your time having mm -hmm. them in a opiate agonist therapy program. They yeah. should be just given safe supply and that should be the end of it. But right now you're seeing there's still an amalgamation of the two programs and other programs and there's all sorts of different initiatives that are all trying to kind of they're they're trying to do good but they're also running into each other so it's it's pretty confusing yeah um but what this is what you would expect i think uh you know given the stage that the the state of the art is at yeah we're we're still very much in the infancy of this whole whole thing aren't we yeah and who knows what'll happen yeah right i mean it might be next year I don't think there'll be a change in government in BC, but there probably will be federally. Yeah. And what that does to federal allowances for safer supply, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like they might say, oh, no, we're, we're going back square one. We're, we're taking it down. Like I, I mean, I would almost expect there to be pressure in that direction. Same. Oh yeah. Same. So yeah, we'll see. But I mean, those are just a couple of the things that I, I think people would be concerned about. I mean, there's more for sure. If there's something you're specifically as a listener concerned about and want us to investigate, we can certainly do our best to do that and, and get some data for you. Just uh, send us an email and uh, we'll try and figure that out for you. Yeah. But I think that's it for that for now. Anyway, what do you think? Corey? I think so. Yeah, for sure. But we'll, we'll come back to this in the very near future for sure. Okay. Sounds good. All right, everybody, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you soon. <laughs>